Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is David Shields. His new book, The Trouble with Men, Reflections on Sex, Love, Marriage, Porn, and Power, is an immersion into the perils, limits, and possibilities of human intimacy. All at once, a love letter to his wife, a nervy reckoning with his own fallibility, a meditation on the impact of porn on American culture, and an attempt to understand marriage. One marriage, the idea of marriage, all marriages. The Trouble with Men is exquisitely balanced between the personal and the anthropological, nakedness and restraint, but unashamedly intellectual. It's also irresistibly readable and extremely moving. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you David Shields. David, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much, Scott. Yeah, I really enjoyed our last conversation, which is, of course, your book, Nobody Hates Trump More Than Trump, which, I mean... Many people might dispute the title, but I think, right. <laughs> but I mean, there's some kind of illusory, I mean, you're, you're doing a little something with that title there. Yeah. I mean, it's meant, well, first of all, thank you. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy that conversation as well. and look forward to chatting this afternoon. I think, yeah, I mean, th- that title is meant to be somewhat tongue in cheek. Don't you think? I mean, nobody hates Trump more than Trump. It's meant to arrest your attention in certain ways, isn't it? Because it's, you know, as you say, the most readers would push back. But it's meant to shine a light on the fact that at the core of the argument of that particular book is the immense self-loathing that animates Trump and that I think connects him to his base, that I think underexplored is this whole phrase that you have used and which is, you know, a part of contemporary discourse of lack and excess. I think Trump leans into his own emotional lacks, connects up with his base's economic and spiritual lacks and offers them as huge compensation, meaningless excess. I mean, that's the essential triangulation his emotional lack, their fiscal lack, and his offering of circus-like excess. I mean, I'm not saying anything new, but it's impossible to overestimate how much of what Trump does has nothing to do with political um, policies. It's entirely political theater and psychic wound healing and wound festering, which kind of gets us to my new book a little bit. Yeah. And, and part of that, right, is normally, I mean, this is, I guess, Lacan, the famous psychoanalytic thinker, psychoanalyst, had kind of the understanding that we're all born with, with sort of primal wounding, right? We, we all have these lacks, you know, we're, and we're not just, uh, it's not, it's both the, you know, it's the, the Western tradition with Augustine. So it's not just our fallenness, but it's our finitude, our fragility, no family's perfect kind of thing. But then, you know, you have also, so, so within that you have this lack and this society sort of says like, if you play by the rules, you know, if you're a good little boy, good little girl, if you, you that, that lack will be filled up and it never is. Right. So we then have our excess and whether it's sexual or, 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 you know, bowling or whatever it is for us, it, you know, but what's interesting is that the, the generally politics was not the form of, of excess and, 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 and the whole, you know, the kind of idea of desire, right? Like this, it's almost like the guilty pleasure, the self-defeating pleasure, but that, that, that usually was not political, but, but, but now it, it's almost, it's, it's become that for many. It really has. I mean, that's where the triumph of, the will comes in that I was just watching a, a a good documentary on Roger Ailes called Divide and Conquer and emphasize how much Ailes supposedly studied very carefully camera angles of triumph of the will, the Lenny Riefenstahl film that, you know, was a crucial propaganda machine for 
Nazism. And I mean, um, but the, God, there was something you, you always say stuff that gets me thinking, but what was the, um, yeah, I mean, it's, a, I mean, in American life, I mean, you think of Italian fascism or German fascism or other times in which desire and political theater have been married. I mean, I'm not enough of a historian to know, but it's hard to think of a time in American history, perhaps Jacksonian democracy, there was an element of that. I mean, all of American life, in a way, is theater, is, you know, as Baudrillard says, you know, is, you know, America as Disneyland, et cetera. But, and Trump just, you know, owns that. I mean, you mentioned Lacan. I mean, I quote him at one point in the book. Yeah, several times. Several, right. The, a key line for me in regard to what we're saying, I mean, this, I mean, he gets it. I mean, this book in many ways, this new book, The Trouble with Men, in a way, is a sort of tissue of, of other people's brilliant comments intermixed with my own confessional investigations. But Lacan says, Love is giving what you don't have to someone who doesn't want it. I just think that's maybe you have to have a uh, a melancholy view, but that is so beautiful to me and so true. And I think once you understand that, love seems softer in a good way. It's like you're never going to get, in my view, maybe, I don't know, this is a very privileged point of view or male or something, or maybe it's someone who's 62 years old, but... Love is giving what you don't have. Basically saying it's a phantasm to someone who doesn't want it. That seems counterintuitive, but it seems so true to me. I mean, would you push back against that Lacanian formulation? No, I think, so you think about what happens with little kids, toddlers at Christmas, and the parents want to create this great Christmas, and they give them this great gift, and all the kid does is mess around the box. Right. And, and it's one of these things where like where this sort of, it's all about anticipation and desire. Right. A hundred times, a thousand times more than the fire engine, the plastic fire engine. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because the, the box is the thing that it is. That's and you're trying to recreate the design. No, it's really interesting. I just heard that it was actually on uh, this, this, the Y theory podcast. They were talking about how that you, if you're selling an iPhone on eBay, if you have the original packaging, the, sh- the, the, the price, rockets up. No, I mean, if that's Even not... Even if, if it's an overtly a used... This is a, a, a one-year-old machine. It's one year, two years old. If you Give have, us the packaging, please. If you have the... Because, again, it's creating the anticipation, right? It's creating desire. It, it, it's so... It, it, it's fascinating that, like... That whether or not people know what the reason for that is, it's... I, I mean, it, it, that does... That makes so much sense to me. I know what you mean, because... And is it... I mean, that is sort of an amazing triumph of imagination over reality that, you know, I know it's a used phone, but I need the packaging to remind myself what of what it is to buy a new phone. And it's as if it is a new phone because it's in the packaging. And I am such an irrational animal along with the other irrational animals on the planet that I'm just going to switch out the real new phone, the real old phone for the imaginary new phone and just pay an extra 70 bucks for it. Yeah. I'm going to have the experience. That's so beautiful to me because we are deaf, dumb and blind, you know, and it's, it's really important to understand that, that we don't, you know, that, you know, we go around as quasi rational yeah, I, I creatures, but we're stumbling in the dark. Yeah, we're know? not rational creatures. We're rationalizing creatures. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, I mean, that, I mean, I feel, I feel, my philosophy personally is if Nietzsche and Augustine agree on anything, it must be true. And, and that, I mean, that is right. I mean, from very different perspectives, both Nietzsche and Augustine see that, that, that desire or the will is, is what drives us. And, and the mind usually follows along and, and, and tells the story that we want, you know, to make sense because we don't like dissonance. Right. right, and so the mind is not so much rational as rationalizing. And that's nice. Yeah, I forget if I. I mean, I guess the you and I have a million quotations that we can pull out of our pocket. But the, that line of Nietzsche, I don't think I I quote him in the book, but he says something like, "There is more wisdom in your body than in all of your philosophies." You know, that's just so Nietzschean. You know, that in a way it gets us back 
to this book. And this I'm is, and, and there's a guy that like whose body was severely limiting to him. Right. Yet, yet he, he couldn't avoid yeah. it. I mean, that's an incredible insight that for, I mean, he was a philosopher obviously who wrote some of the great epigraphs, epigrams ever. And, you know, it was, but that he would say that, you know, and in a way this book is trying to get at some of that idea that, you know, what is my body telling me? You know, how, what is, why, you know, what is my body responding to? Like there was a book, I, I don't know if you ever have looked at an earlier book I co-wrote called That Thing You Do With Your Mouth, the sexual autobiography of Samantha Matthews. Is told you reference it in the book, yeah. I mention it here, and it was a book I co-wrote with my, with my cousin who was sexually abused as a child, and then she was drawn to both fleeing and replicating that abuse in her later relationships all the way up until now in her mid-40s. But she talks quite powerfully in that book about the look. Certain men would have this very cold, hard look, which, big surprise, was the exact look of her abuser or maybe abusers, who I think it was two of her stepbrothers. And just the awesome, awful knowledge of stored in her body was this knowledge that that cold, hard, you know, very, very male gaze is weirdly or not so weirdly the very look that she finds most sexually exciting. It's like, I mean, in a way it's so obvious but in a way, that's not a bad parable of this whole book. Yeah, because I mean, this you, whole book circles back around to you, some of it. You that. talk about in the book your own tortured relationship with your mother, and right. it, it was circles right. It could be abusive, humiliating. Mm-hmm. You know, just a, a, a relationship that was really wounding to you. Right. And yet, throughout the book, you you talk about your own masochism, your own right. desire. I, I, one of the great lines I love in the book is like, you know, you live in Seattle, right? And you say, I, I, I pull out my phone, I check the Mariners score, and, and they lose, and I need them to lose. Yeah. <laughs> I say, I want them to win, but need them to yeah. lose. You, yeah. need, you need that, and you talk about it, you, in that same section of the book, you say that all the good stories are in the losers' locker rooms. Not, I love that not line, too. Winners. It's from Ben Maller, who's this sports talk show host. I'm sorry, I didn't, didn't mean to step on your line there, Scott. You're, you can step on anything <laughs> you want. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's a guy who I don't particularly listen to him anymore. He's a guy who's a, a sports talk show host on, I think it's called Fox Sports Radio or something like that. And anyway, he sometimes comes on at midnight from like midnight to 4 a.m. or something on the West Coast. And uh, he's surprisingly thoughtful and melancholy and really interested in sports as a sort of theater of American culture. And he happens to, to lean sort of pretty conservative and he's is sometimes kind of interesting as an X-ray into the psyche of, I think, a sort of Trumpian base. But he has this line, which I think is a remix of the line, by Pete Hamill or some Jimmy Breslin or something like the better story is always in the losing locker room. I think that's so powerful that winning's boring, you know, on some level. I mean, this, I don't think I got this line into this book, but I don't know if if you share my admiration of E.M. Sharon, the, um, do you know his work? I don't even share your familiarity with E.M. Sharon. It could be I'm I'm mispronouncing his name. C-I-O-R-A-N. Have you ever seen I don't think, his I, I think you would like it. He was was born in Romania and spent almost all his adult life in France. Anyway, he has amazing aphoristic philosopher, very very Nietzschean, who says only one thing matters: learning to be the loser, which is a very anti-American notion. You know that we're all about business and capitalism and success and a kind of whatever, cowboy swagger, you know. And Sharon means that in terms of, you know, that we all ultimately die. And so it's kind of important that you learn how to lose your life ultimately. And so anyway, that line could be this book's epigraph that, you know, there's something liberating about coming 
It's a loving care fate. It's painful, but it's important to understand who you are wired to be. And I think the book argues for the wisdom of coming to understand how you're psych- psychologically wired. There's a psychiatrist I, I he, like. His name's Frank Lake. He's dead now. He died in the early 80s, but he was uh, very interested. British. He was very interested in religion and psychiatry. And in the beginning of his magnum opus, like 1,100 pages long, he says that something to the effect that when we look at our humanity and look at us as something that should be the container of something good, the problem is every time we existentially or back against the wall, we open it up and the cupboard looks bare, right? So he says, so the wisdom is to let the bottom get knocked out of your humanity, which ruins it as a container, but makes it a great channel and vessel for the real energy of life. That, 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 that sort of recognizing finitude, right? And, and the throneness of life, you're thrown into it with that's nice. your wiring, right? And, and, and that embracing that is the way to live. Exactly. That's beautiful. No, that really connects up the Sharon and the Nietzsche, and it does get to sort of the project of, of this book, in a sense, that in a way... Which starts as a love letter to your wife. I mean, it's it interesting because all I can think as I was reading this is that I want to meet your wife, which is <laughs> is straight, which is probably well. It's not all I could think because I was uh-huh. thinking a lot about our conversation throughout the book. Yeah, I was thinking, thinking, God, I'd love to meet what who is this yeah, person? Yeah, which maybe is part of like the uh, probably psychologically some weird thing that great I, I missed her out yeah, 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 I, I, that's a form of rejection or probably you know, you're more interested in my wife than me <laughs> or something like that you missed a form of rejection of, of that of, I was thinking like if, as I'm saying that to you I'm thinking of the book and I think are you hearing that as a rejection of you and oh, if, no, you know, okay. no no Good. no I was I'm, I mean it is a funny idea that I mean I was just thinking instead that it was sort of an indirect praise of the book because I've created not that I don't think, I don't think the character of you as developed is a particularly fascinating figure. She's more of a kind of cipher, I think, or maybe a substitute figure of the reader on some level, or she's on some level, I think, a projection of yeah, my own psyche. You say in the but, book that almost nobody ever gets past their own, you say it early on in the book that almost nobody ever gets past their own projections right. to anybody. I mean, that basically what, what this is probably, I guess, why something like marriage is still is attractive, right? Even in a contemporary society, at least you you have some time to sort of try to at least scratch past the projection. Which right. may, there may it may be something that's futile, but right. at least it's a sort of Don Quixote kind of you know chasing at windmills. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think. Yeah, I mean, I don't obviously mean it as an absolute that obviously I know my wife. I mean, I've been married almost 30 years now, but, um, um, you know, uh, I know her better than I knew her a long time ago. And I think it's probably her nature too, that she's, you know, she's not hugely verbal in the way that I am and the way that you are, that she's very intelligent, but she expresses her intelligence in ways that I don't, you know, with, she's just not the, you know, at some point I talk about, you know, I quote this sort of cornball preacher, Gary Chapman. Chapman and I, fi- I, was, I was thinking of the quote where you said the that there's babblers and dead, and dead seas. seas. Yeah. And she's a total, almost comically dead sea. And, you know, in a way she's. How did you find that book, that Chapman book? Well, I must admit, I just, I think it's a weirdly useful trope, the five languages of love. It, it, I mean, it's a power, and I I actually see it everywhere when, you know, I must admit, I just turned pages. I really just wanted those five. And for the listeners that don't know, the book is called The, the, the Five Love Languages. They're like touch, words of affirmation, acts of service, time. Like there's, Yeah, these- and there's one, I always, and then there's like touch, like that would be a physical, a highly physical person. There would be gifts for some people for, you know, I'll buy you a car, I'll buy you a ring. Then there's service, like I'll mow the lawn or something. Then there's, I, I mean, I'm kind of, a, then there's talk, like talk, like I like to talk. There, then the fifth one is strike. I always forget the fifth one. But anyway, the, I don't know if you. Uh, time, time. Oh, yeah, just quality time. Quality you, time, yeah. You know, where you, you know. And so you're just spending time together. And obviously that no one is just 
one. Right, right. But Chapman argues persuasively, I think, and that book is sold, you know, 10 million copies or something. He's given all the money, supposedly, back to his, his various churches. And he's, you know, but anyway, it's, I find it a useful holding tank to think about couples and their relationships and my relationship in particular, because for so long I'd be so baffled at how Lori, or I know I'm not supposed to say her name, how, how my wife. Is that your rule or her rule? It's more my rule. I just thought, I, you know, she's asked me to, you know, the, we don't talk about the book that, that much. Did she read it? She's read it twice. And anyway, we can talk about that that now. That had to feel good. Well, that she's read it twice and she, you know. You chronicle in the book like a little bit of a tortured relationship to your work. And and you talk about maybe this is the nature of every artist, you know. That might be a rationalizing animal there on my part saying that. But, you know, I think of friends who are writers who are are married to fellow writers, you know, and sometimes I think, what would that be like? And certainly past girlfriends have been writers. And I must admit, I, I didn't find those relationships particularly connecting, that I found those even more discombobulating in the sense that I didn't find those readings of my work. And I didn't like, I'm not dying to talk. Like, I, I really enjoy talking to you or to friends or colleagues or peers or emailing friends, but I'm not dying to talk all the time about my work. I mean, Bernard Malman said to Harold Brodke, you know, that you've talked away at least five good books. And so, you know, part of it for me is, I don't know, perhaps even living in Seattle, I'm not hugely part of any major sort of literary community. I I teach at the university there and I just sort of write my books. And there's there must be part of me that really likes that. Just sort of going off on my own strange path as opposed to being, say, with a wife or a whole group of writers endlessly talking about all things literary. I mean I'm constantly talking to friends through email, but Anyway, the point... Do you think you need some of that, like, also mild forms of isolation or something? You know, the, the, the masochistic tendency in you, which you write about. I mean, do you, do you feel like if you were in a kind of, you know, dream salon kind of culture, some in New York or another, you know, place that, that in some sense, the sort of, some of the existentially tortured stuff in you would just, would that kill your creativity on some I think stupidly, I actually believe that, that, you know, part of me loves being here this week. I'm, I'm in New York talking with you and I'm, you know, you know, it was like a nice review of the book in the times this morning. You know? Glowing. Well, yeah, it was very. I mean, the, the reviewer got the book. I agree. I mean, it was a very generous and thoughtful review, and you know, it's weird. I and there was emotion. I mean, there were emotionally elicited responses that I felt like when I read that review. I thought this is kind of he's got to love this because, in some level, I mean, he, I know it seemed alive with a human being. And you were not easy on the readers all the time. Like, I mean, it, it just I know what you mean. It's not a sentimental book. No, and also, I mean. It just genre, even like the Trump book too. I mean, it it is a book. It, both of these books are books that the reader. It's going to tire the reader a little bit at certain points because it's you have to figure out where you mm-hmm. begin and someone else's quote ends. And I found myself part trying to parse out these different things. <laughs> so I, I I wondered was that one of two things? Like I, I felt like on one level either consciously or subconsciously, my guess is this is more conscious. Like you're saying, Hey, look, every writer is a, you know, there's very few original thoughts. We're all walking around recycling ideas. So the difference between me and most other writers is if I say, I just tell you what, what, where it's coming from. I'll right. just, you know, and I'll right. tell you where I see myself. And the other thing is this sort of like, if someone can suffer through like, wait, because even the way you punctuate, you, you'll write a paragraph. Sometimes there'll be a paragraph where I realized, wait, that paragraph is part of the quotation. Wait, this one's not. Right. And is it sort of like, hey, you've got to suffer to love me, to love the work? That's interesting. I didn't, I don't, I don't know. It's a great question. It strikes me more the former than the latter. I'm happy to be persuaded. Otherwise, Scott, that it's, you know, I'm definitely not trying to be 
hard on the reader. I'm just trying to write in a way, the only way I I can write. This is the way the writing comes to me. I mean, believe it or not, this book was once 3,000 pages long of notes, just these 30, 100-page notebooks, which I had kept over many years. This huge just galaxy of my notes, quotes from other people, emails from friends, research article. How many? Okay, so those are notebooks, like written, handwritten? Um, they started handwritten, then they became typed. It was just endless project. Okay, I, I don't know where you, how you work. Where you, I mean, although I have seen you on Skype once, and I think you were somewhere. Where does that sit in your workspace? I mean, or is that in these huge, like you know, I have these huge file cabinets full of these. I think it was ten, three hundred page notebooks, which I just carry with me constantly, reading through them, getting rid of stuff, getting rid of stuff, getting rid of stuff, so that. 3,000 pages became ultimately this very brief and very compressed book. But I guess, I don't know, it's funny how much I think through quotation, whether I think through, you know, and it's also more, I think, the sense of trying to universalize the experience to the degree anything can be universalized. And also this whole idea for me, too, of, you know, I want, to use myself as a vector on the grid of this larger investigation. I mean, I'm not a big fan of super narrow focused memoirs. I mean, you know, the review this morning in the Times sort of emphasized that it's, you know, a relatively narrow focus, which is true, but I also want the book to be about larger you know, I do want it to be about the trouble with men or the, the nature of desire. And here is me as a mini example. Here's my little case study, how I got formatted, how I, how it got expressed, expressed, continues to be expressed in my marriage, how in some ways it's dramatized in porn or whatever, and how... Yeah, several times in the book you say there's attributions from porn chat room. <laughs> from the porn chat room. Uh-huh. So are those, were you in the porn chat room? You heard that and you, and you jotted I mean, it down or. Were, I think that is research. I mean, again, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not particularly shy about revealing stuff. I think that was, you know, I don't think I was in the porn chat room and like surreptitiously writing stuff down, you know, but, I no, but I mean, were, is that your own experience? Like, Hey, I, I had these desires. I mean, mm-hmm. you talk about your own sort of, desire for things like humiliation mm-hmm. and suffering, mm-hmm. which obviously it's interesting too, because you talk about in the eighties sort of BDSM stuff gets a little more mainstream. And now, I mean, geez, you have these, it's such a cliche, you have these sex toy parties, right? Where women mm-hmm. you know, are drinking. I, I mean, I don't mean that to be stereotypical, but generally it's women that do, that, that do those, right? Right. They're drinking like shampoo and coolies or a Chardonnay and, and we're pulling out anal toys and things like that. Uh-huh. So it's, it, it I mean, but it, it, at the time you're coming across it, these things seem, yeah. And, and there weren't like um, kinky versions of Facebook and things like that where people can get connected and things like that. Right. It, 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 it took a journey. I mean, it, it did take a kind of a, a journey into a, another realm in some sense, right? I think that's true that for me, I mean, I think, I, I don't know, this book has just been published, you know, two, three weeks ago. So I haven't heard any reactions from my students yet or anything, but I think, they might find it. I mean, I remember I had a research assistant help help me on certain stuff, trying to find certain quotes, and he would see certain early drafts. And I thought his his reaction was terribly interesting. That he would say that he was less in any way startled or struck by any of the sexual stuff, which seemed to him old hat as someone who was you know twenty three or something grew up with you know, porn and like it was all this stuff about kink and stuff. They've, they've grown up with it in the way that I 40 years older would not have grown up with it. I had to go on my own strange journey that wasn't fired by, by kink parties, you know, drinking champagne. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? 
because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Saul, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, and Stephen Rowe. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Right, my wife calls this affectionately calls this group of kids in our neighborhood the Wheelie Boys. They 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 drive around, they ride around their bikes like you know they're adolescent boys. And they, well, I said, babe, come here. There's a, there's a confab of Wheelie Boys, and they're in a circle. And I'm thinking, what are they talking about? And then she says, well, someone you know touched breast today. I mean, obviously, some kids like I touched some girl's breast. And that's then, that's an amazing. I don't know if she was. Was dead serious or? Yeah. It, she, well, then we, she and I laughed because we we're talking about how naive we are. It was probably something like we filmed anal sex while her dad was gone or something. You know, they could, because it, it, we were thinking, she was thinking back to. To the, her child. Right. Yeah. And so I thought that's so great. You know, you know it, 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 it's just so helpful. And she, but then we're like, oh no, now it, it becomes, you know, it, it's interesting because uh, a couple about a month and a half ago, I had an Aristotle scholar on this one, Edith Hall, and she was saying, we were saying, you know, do you think, she talked about how Aristotle's a philosopher of the whole. So, you know, it's interesting because Aristotle knew less about the world than we do. Sure. And yet felt more at home in it. I mean, he, and he was interested in every nook and cranny of, of the world. I, I wonder about, about sexuality as people who are not kind of wowed by the sex. Is, is, is there something like, I mean, we know more about the physical world, but we're banned from asking questions of purpose or tell us. And so do you, I wonder if there are people with all that knowledge. You mean a younger generation? Yeah, like I wonder if there's comes more alienation. I mean, I think that would be the standard position of people. Like I'm, I'm much older than you are, but you know, that, um, you know, I'm, tr- you know, I'm trying not in any way. I mean, I think it's impossible to overestimate the effect. I think, I mean, my daughter's 25, and so I'll have to ask her, or perhaps I'll have to not ask her, but, you know, the, it's impossible to overestimate the, the effect of, of ubiquitous porn on that generation. It's just, I think, monumental. I, th- I think, and she, you know, and she's a graphic memoirist herself, and her, her first book is a book called... Uh, Love floppy disks and other stuff. The internet killed, which could almost be the title of this book in a strange way. That she too is interested in exploring a lot of that stuff as well. And um, but um, I'm just trying to circle back to your earlier question, having to do with you know um, all this quotation, and perhaps we have moved on from it. But you know, I just. I don't think I'm trying to necessarily have this be a difficult challenge for the reader so much as, you know, I want to shoot wide, you know, whether it's the Trump book or this new book, Trouble with Men. You know, I just want to. In both books you invite, I mean, I think, and and this is experience I'm reading both of them, like they were mirrors. Uh, in different ways, but you know, mirrors on the society or on myself, on my own, on myself. Oh, I, I see. I, I felt like as the reader, maybe that right. just validates that we never get past our psychic right. projections. But I found, like in the Trump book, I felt like you were asking people, look, you know, the the it's easy to like look at this big problem, but like how much of us are contributing to in the zeitgeist? You can't neatly 
Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it, where does Trump get? Does Trump get more coverage on MSNBC or Fox? I know. It's a, it's a very close call. Yeah, I, know. It, I think that's exactly right. So I found myself less thinking about Trump as I read that book and in, in the process of self-examination and, and in what ways Trump represents a kind of sea of forces that I'm a part of. Totally. And this book, I mean, without being too confessional, where how did this force you to confront some of your own mirroredness? I mean, did it force you to ask stuff about either marriage or psyche or all the above or you have this great line, uh, that I texted to my wife (laughs) and one of her best friends. And I said, yeah, you said, you talked about how there's this observation that somebody made that I'm just gonna be very candid. Okay. That, Guys that are breast men, right? Like, I love that line. I have the, to admit. Guys that are breast men had have attentive more. mothers. And so that's why they're like breasts. Cause this, and guys that are ass, ass men. men, they had cruel or, uh, cool, or distant cold mother. or distant, you know, some, they're always walking away. And so they're drawn to this sort of walk, the walk, the, the, the sight of the mother walking away. That's amazing. That's to me such a good sign about your marriage that you texted it to, to your wife. <laughs> in the sense that she could hang I, I, with I, it. like one of her best love, friends. We had a group text about it. <laughs> I love that. And what did, you, I mean, did she, I assume you wouldn't have sent it unless you're a breast man or not necessarily. No, quite the opposite. I, wow. I, I, there's probably more of the primal wounding that I Inter- share. Yeah, interesting. I, yeah, but I mean, I, this, so it's interesting. Did they dig it or could they hang with it? I thought it was they awesome. Like, Scott, like, you're fucked up. Or no, they, they were laughing. And, uh-huh. and they, yeah, I mean, they, they were, yeah, I mean, they were very, wow. yeah, I mean. And how about the friend? How did she, that's cool that you guys could all. There were several, I sent several screenshots of your book. <laughs> Whoa. And they thought it was great. I mean, they thought, I mean, they're, so, so, okay, so let me ask you this. You write this book, The Trouble with Men, which again is talking about your own getting your own sort of the psychological sort of hardwiring, you know, whatever your firmware, you know, <laughs> I just wanted to figure it out yeah. to be honest. Like in a way it was like a very simple project. The unexamined like, life is unworthy. Exactly. And this like, is, what is the matter? Not the matter with me, but like, how am I wired? Cause this is, you say, this is getting, this is getting repetitious. It, like there was something in the book that you said about sex. And you said like, basically like all about the comic nature of it or whatever, the all, that our sexual fantasies matter, but they finally don't matter. That thing, and, you were like, and you were like, no, our sex is so serious. Right. And, and yeah. I think it is. I mean, like, you know, obviously it, I think that is, there's something like, I think I quote A.O. Scott, the film critic or someone saying the best films about sexual obsession are all inherently comic. Comic. Yeah. And, and you I said, say, no, like, I said, that's totally wrong in my view. Sex is so serious. Like in a way that sounds sort of, of corny and uh, like in some levels, sex, I guess I sort of, I guess more power to you if you can view sexuality, I guess, as this playful, rather passing thing. But, and maybe it's only if you're relatively wounded, do you view sex as this unbelievably hungry longing that has unbelievable need and, and excess in it. But I mean, to me, I've always felt that it's just, you know, it's, it's serious. Obviously it's the perpetuation of the species, but it's hungers really matter in the way that for me, you know, every conventional movie, when there's a sex scene, it just cuts to, you know, the sheets moving around and the, the sex the couple has doesn't actually matter. You, you, you know, who's on top, who's on bottom, who's doing what to whom. Like in a way, this whole book is about what you want and what you need. Those things really matter. Those little funky kinks that you're drawn toward, like those, I think, speak volumes. I, I'm looking something up that I had written down. Like my the passage on my phone. No, it was the uh, it was a word I was looking for. That, I wonder what it was. That it was the Calipigian. Calipigian. So I think s- I'm pronouncing it right. So you said that your wife was embarrassed because that, that we were playing, we were playing Pictionary. Pictionary with another couple, and, and you knew word, what Calipigian was. The word came up as Calipigian. Do you know the word? Or did you know it before? I certainly know it now. There you go. 
And we'll have to let, I don't know if we're going to inform the viewers. I don't know if I have the technical definition. So basically it's, it's the, the, it means having a, a beautiful posterior. Right. But also like tending toward like the robust yeah. posterior. And so like the word. Pippa Middleton. Yeah, exactly. Who's a, you're a fan well, of. I talk, <laughs> I talk about Pippa Middleton. And, and so that, um, you know, like the word Calipigian came up and I, you know, I just knew what it meant. And like, I don't know if my no, wife... Your, your wife was embarrassed. Why? Because I can imagine, I can imagine some women that could find that like... Cool, right. Charming or endearing or sexy or, right. or something. So, no, I think it does, subs- in a way, it's that, you know, the way all this sort of circles the same paradox. You know, part of me is sort of jealous that, like, that's cool to me that you would text your wife and her friend. You guys would share these passages and they'd get a kick out of it. And, you know, it might be generational in the sense that, you know, I, I think the conversation is more fluid and more honest, maybe, among, say, people of, say, your generation. You know, I think I'm, you know, I'm 62. I don't know how old that you are, but I assume you're, you know, much, much younger than that. And, that, you know, I feel like whereas with my wife, maybe we're back to the five love languages that, you know, she, I don't know what, it's just not, you know, that we have at times, you know, had like a great sexual life. And, I, I mean, it sounds yeah, but, very intense. I mean, you, you talk about this one scene in the book where you, you, she tells you that your dad never taught you how to be a man, right? Right. And you say, fuck you, bitch, leave or something. Uh-huh. And she leaves her on, she comes back. She says, fuck me, you pig. And, right. and, and in these other scenes, I mean, there was this. Those scenes, it's important. I mean, I don't know if I should say that, but those, I mean, I'm happy to answer your question, but I think I somehow feel those um, scenes. I would say, mild disclaimer, the youth figure in the book is, um, you know, a slightly generalized figure and at a certain point my wife asked me to take out certain passages that were not her and I would say the couple passages that you've mentioned you know happen not to be have happened to her per se they were based on other people so I would say there's a sense in which the you figure is a slight holding tank of my own psychic projections and also of past relationships. But that doesn't in any way qualify your larger point, but I just wanted to make Yeah, because there's no, you know, whatever, like when Hegel says the truth is in the whole, right? And Adorno's response is the whole is a lie. But I think he's reading Hegel as saying that, that that whole is over against the particular. And yet like for Hegel, the whole is only the, through particulars, right? right. So on some right. level, there's got to be... It doesn't matter. Yeah, the right. distinction you, is you, without a difference. But anyway, but complete your thoughts, Scott, because you're on a good... Like, okay, why couldn't you say to your wife, you know, that you knew what Calipigian meant? Right. Why, instead, why would that be embarrassing? I know her? what you mean. It's sort of like... I don't... Like, I think we'll have to ask her. She'll have to be on the next podcast, but... You would know, she come on a podcast? No. I mean, one thing she said, you know, she has like a few people who are going to do a review of the book. You know, they asked if she'd be interviewed. She goes, you've got to be kidding. You know, like, so there's, you know, she has no comment. I want the rights to that if she ever changes her mind. Because I would, I would, I might come to Seattle. I love it. For that. But, you know, and then she's, you know, she's very, and it's weird though, that we'll watch very intense films and shows and she'll read very sexually explicit Literature, I mean, not X stuff, but, you know, very, you know, that she likes Philip Roth and Milan Kundera. It's not like she's by any means a prude, but that she, I don't know, it's funny to me. Like, I'm struggling, obviously, to explain this, but there'd be a sense in which I don't think she has, you know, I don't know if she, either she doesn't have demons or she hasn't wrestled with her demons so that this whole thing, idea of sex as a theater for psychic woundedness is for her just like, I don't know what you're talking about. And like on some level, I mean, what, and so Calipigian, it's sort of like, why would that be a problem? I mean, in a way, this whole book is my attempt to say, you know, why am I married to someone for whom 
it's embarrassing that her husband knows what Calipigian means. Or at one point I say, I'm married to Margaret Dumont, you know, the, the stock figure of the Groucho Marx movies, you know, like who doesn't get my jokes. And I think the harsh truth that the book tries to explore is maybe I'm drawn to someone who doesn't totally understand me as because without that misunderstanding, I wouldn't have had to write the book or I wouldn't have had to write all these books that we are at such, there's such, I don't know. I don't know if you can build on this. I'm not explaining well, it well. well. Do you think also that, that anybody that says that, well, I married someone that understands me, is, I mean, that's, that's just that's nonsense. Right, right? Exactly. That, that, so, it, I mean, it's the desire thing on some level. Right. The reason why. It's need, 10% versus 1%. Right. Like, I'm not even at 10%. Right? It, it's funny because I think that many social conservatives like decry a, a lot of the development of modern, late modern culture and, you know, destroying marriage and, you know, but, but I mean, at one level, I think late modern culture offers, if you're lucky enough to be born into places where you can, you know, be a little lucky and make a living and things like that. Right. Or, or you can have the privilege of actually reflecting on some of this stuff existentially and actually, and because we're in a place where men and women are getting more and more parity with regard to agency and income and things where these things actually, it, 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 I mean, it, it's an, it's an, it's an interesting, I mean, one could look at this book, right. As an argument for marriage, an argument as, That's lovely. as a, How so? in the sense that it's a tragic journey, but let's do it together because, or, I mean, tell me how you, for you, it could be understood to be, because I think that that rings true to me. That might be counterintuitive to some people who would think I'll go shrinking into the night I, I before I marry after this book. I don't but, know that if it's I don't know if it's comic or tragic because it's it, right. a true tr- tragedy, right? Like the the, the the main figure kind of does something awful, and there's one the, the loss is usually very asymmetrical and things like that. But like in the comedy, everybody there's this embrace of finitude, right? The jokes on right. everybody kind of right. thing, and that's. And I feel like you kind of invite, I mean, there's some very intense moments in the book. And yet at the, I, I came away reading the book, thankful for being married. Wow. That's such a generous reading about it. I mean, that rings true to me. And that is the way I frankly hoped that, that my wife would take the book, that there's this, a line later in the book toward the very end where I say, Part of this is, quote, part of it isn't on 133, where I quote Auden and Yates and Antonia Nelson, and then I have some of my own lines. The desires of the heart are as crooked as corkscrews. Love is the crooked thing. Love is sadness. And then I say what strikes me as a relatively crucial couple of lines. Life is tragic. Everybody knows it especially you, which is what connects us. I think that my wife has just, you know, a profoundly, even though she has sort of a surface pleasantness and a a surface normality, underneath she has an unbelievably acidic take on the human condition. And I think, you know, the most generous reading of our marriage is that we are as different as we are, as problematic as we are, we're each other's happy problem. And we've sort of found a nice, a, a weirdly right fit for our psychic drives. And then the more, you know, the less happy take on it would be that we're, you know, that we're mismatched, don't particularly belong together and are staying together out of habit or inertia or, uh, Almost, I don't know something else, you know. But you—you <clears throat> you don't write about it as if the latter. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it could be the latter of giving yeah, your I'm, writing. I mean, because you—you you would write a different book. I mean, right? It's—it's it, it's not American Beauty. It's not kind of. It's not. You're not. No. Yeah. I mean, it's very intense. Right. Uh, the, it, because that passage you were quoting earlier, Scott. Where did you want to take that? Where? It's sort of like, get out of here, you fucking bitch. You know, your father never taught you to be a man, you know. And then 
To me, but, and, but, then, it, it, and then it, later, it, to me, it's not meant to be a continuous scene, but perhaps you read it as such. But, in which I, she says, fuck me, you, you know, you pig, pig. I, you know, which those are, you know, and that. Is there a, something you wanted to do with those passages? Well, I thought of these things where you, the the emasculation, humiliation was wounding. Right. And yet erotic. Right. And, and, right. And not just erotic, sexually, emotional. I mean, totally. There was this kind of, and it revisits the wounds. Totally. And yet in a way that uh, the, the there's what does Chesterton say? He wrote this essay, "The Wildness of Domesticity." He says, "Look, He's so good. Yeah, call call married life anything, but don't call it tame because you're king and queen of your own castle, and you don't have you know there are no rules. Like there are." Chesterton is insanely good. I think. Yeah, he's, I did too. He's wildly misunderstood as some kind of I don't know what Catholic theologian or something. I mean, he's a he's he's amazing writer. I love Chesterton. Yeah, me but, too. Um, but anyway, um, yeah. So, well, I mean, I'm really. I mean, it's 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 amazing that uh, I don't know what I'm gonna. I'll take. I just love the idea that you that you took some screenshots and sent to, <laughs> to, to your your wife and her friend, and just in a way, it sounds like that you know your wife and her friend well enough. That you didn't feel particularly trepidatious, like uh, not in the least, that's, not in the that's least. Really not in the least. That's really lovely. Yeah, you know, that's, that's enviable. I mean, that's cool. Well, yeah, and I mean, you. So here's okay. Here's what I'm thinking as I'm reading the book. I'm thinking because you talk about you know the things that turn you on and uh, analingus and domination and mm-hmm. all sorts of things and, and and certain things in porn and other things like and the, and these are things that are you know I mean. Fairly, I, I I don't think you're unique in in among men, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and even if not the, in the particulars of, right. of of the kinks or this or that, what, right? You know, the, but what do you, you quote Dan Savage? I, I actually been on the podcast before. I mean, I think Dan is a wonderful guy. You see, if a lifelong kink is not something. Right. It's something deeply embedded in you. Right. He says it's as deeply embedded as your sexual orientation, orientation yeah, which yeah. strikes me as, you know, I mean that. So Savage has been on this show, or you've been yeah, on this no, show? No, I've been, he's been on this show, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and but it's interesting, too, because one of the things I said to him is that he, in some ways he's a conservative small c. He's an advocate for intimacy and marriage and totally. family. I mean, he's a very, uh, just, uh, and these things are important, right? Like, these things are the social glue that hold, us, hold mm-hmm. the society together in some ways. Like, conservatives aren't all wrong in that. Did he agree with that? Oh, yeah. He's so... He, Interesting. Yeah, I mean, he's um, he's a beautiful human. But but that, I mean, you are, are, you know, are pretty honest about the cards on the table around that stuff. And, you know, there's the whole Madonna horror complex, right? We The feminists write about, you know, uh, oh, you got to be one or the other. You right. know, you got to be the shining woman of virtue or the one you can tell all these dirty things to or whatever. Like, at what point in, with your wife do you start, like, saying, hey... Because sometimes I think, you know, almost if you meet a woman, you can have, you, you actually say in the book, you say, look, look, love and lust don't come for me. If I have a crush on somebody, like I have to really kind of work at it a little bit to get the lust. But if I just find somebody attractive, like the lust comes quickly. I mean, at one point, which, which is classic kind of right, just the way our own primal woundings sever these things. Right. And so like at one point, did you broach integration? Because if you're married for 30 years. I know what you mean. Like why? I know. I don't know. It's a great question, you know, and like, you know, and in a way, the whole book is an attempt to wrestle with that. Then in a way that we're, and I think I even talk about that at one point, in a way that we become sort of weirdly shy around each other, that pretty early on in the conversation, like I, for some reason I'm flashing on our honeymoon where we went to, of all things, the Toronto Film Festival not of you know not the most amazing honeymoon, but that we were both sort of mad for film, and so we just thought it'd be fun to go to Toronto for ten days and and watch a bunch of films and hang out, you know. And um, I I mean, it was, I don't think it's a particularly seminal moment, but I remember that we were in the hotel, and you know, I was just flipping through through channels, and you know, I came across some porn. I wasn't you know necessarily trying to integrate that into our sexual routine per se. But I, I remember that she said, you know, 
you know, can you please turn, turn that off? You know, like she didn't want to, she was saying like, oh God, is this marriage going to become a wash, you know, in porn or whatever, you know? And so I just, I moved on to the next channel and I don't know, it's, it just, you know, I think it's a, they're great questions, which all of which the book tries to answer that I say in the book, if I were married to Katerine Millet that who's, you know, who wrote that book, The Sexual Life of Catherine M. You know, there's no way I would have wanted or needed to write this book. I'd have been employing and deploying all these things in my actual life. But for whatever reason, you know, whether it's my own shyness, whether it's her shyness, whether, you know, this aspect of our sexual life which would be that the thing would get less vanilla and more uh, kind of down and dirty. You know, it hasn't been like, it's gotten somewhat that way. But, you know, this is an attempt to push the conversation forward. Or the book was, you know, and, and when I showed... I mean, there's, easy, there's easier ways than writing a book. I know. I mean, maybe <laughs> and that's a good point. Why not just say, that's a good point. That's a writer's excuse for you. Yeah, I know what you mean. Like, just say it. I know what you mean. I I know, I don't, I mean, I feel weirdly wordless here. I mean, I just think, um, you know, I don't know what to say other than, you know, I, I don't know what to say other than it's fascinating that that's happened. And I think that when I sort of broached it, I remember at one point, I mean, again, it's interesting. I haven't thought about this for a very long time. Like, um, I remember when we'd hover around conversations around this. I remember at one point. Around sex. Yeah, like very specific sexual stuff. And I remember that, that my wife said, you know, why don't you write up, you know, stuff that you're interested in, you know. What an invitation. And that's, a, that's so an did. amazing... I did. You did, okay. I did. So I wrote up this rather long list, you know, because I'd been storing up the list for quite some time. You know, and like, maybe, I don't know, like, and she just said, you know, it was weird. Like, I said, oh, this is great. So I really went to town, all of my little things, which were, you know, relatively, you know, they they weren't particularly fantastical they were the kinds i guess some of the things that are mentioned in the book and and much more mild things and she just said i don't want to do these things and i don't want to see that paper around so could you can we please move on and like it was a classic i mean to me that's relatively consonant with the character in the book is a little bit of a give and take and push and pull and what i mean, what, I mean it what, does sound a little sad doesn't it but i mean I, i'm wondering is it sad or is it also this like Oh, the rejection. Oh, that kind of like, I know what you mean. I mean, I mean, it's like a brilliant, it's, it's so much congruent with the, uh, the psychic turbulence of the book, yeah. which is it's, it's yanking a chain, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe on some, you know, very profound level that she knew what I wanted, which was in a way the most erotic thing was the rejection. Yeah. You know, like that would be, I think, did she deny it? But that would be, that's a powerful idea. Because it is weird. Write it all up, and now those are off the table. It's like, okay, why did I write it up? You know, so in a way, that's a really... Did you ever revisit it? Um, I think I may have, and some of that maybe has swum into our lives a little bit. You know, some of the activities have circled around a little bit. But, you know... Um, this, I don't know. It's wild. This is getting a little depressing, Scott. So we'll have to. No, I, but um, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I think. Um, is it really getting depressing? I mean, not really. It's more just like it's. You know, I think in the book I can control the discourse a little yeah, bit, yeah. So that it always has a slightly. I don't know what the conversation in the book how it sounds. It's a little bit, maybe a little ironic or a little. Um, are we all fucked kind of quality, but, you know, talking to you just person to person live, you know, it feels like, whoa, this is my actual life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, this you is, know, which is fine. A but, lot you know, of it's people like, that had traumatic childhoods learn to talk about it 
like yeah. it happened to somebody else, like you're right. watching a movie, and maybe that's easier to do for, with you in writing right. than it is in conversation. Because right. it's your right. life. Yeah, exactly. And so, I don't know, it's powerful stuff that we're talking about. I don't, I mean, this is, I, I don't want to put a crimp on the conversation, but I, I do have to meet someone at four. Oh, shoot. So, it's quarter of four. Right, so I, 20 of four. So maybe, and I think the place is relatively nearby. I want to wrap it up. Then. I just, so I really apologize, but, um, it's okay. We, you know, can I ask you one more of thing? Of course, of course. So the trouble with men, mm-hmm. we're in the me too movement, right? Like, sorry, we're in the me too movement era right. kind of thing. Right. Do you, one of the interesting things about the me too movement, right? Is that it starts to parallel traditional religious society in the sense of, you know, there's all these rules, right? Generally, and they get subverted underground, but the rules like, Hey, you can't, men can't behave around women. You know, we have to separate them. We have to all these rules and that kind of thing. And now it's almost seems like on certain parts of the left, it's the same thing. Well, men are these kind of bestial creatures who kind of had, you know, and men and women can't be adults or can't be ambiguity and these hard things. So it's like, so it's weird. It's almost like in a divided thing, right? In a divided, polarized civil war, almost level conflict. This is the one thing the left and the right can agree on. That there's this. Is that what? What's the agreement? Is that you know? There's just toxic things about male and female sexuality, and we have to have some kind of. We have to have stringent rules, whether they're kind of conservative religious rules where people don't. Yeah, where there's a great point that you know everybody on the left mocks. Mike Pence for not being willing to have a meal with a woman if his wife isn't present. But in a way, the ways in which men and women have been siloed on the left, as you're pointing out, mirrors that exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's fantastic reading of it. This is not stuff you're supposed to say, you know, in in mixed company in the sense that, you know, there is. And I'm surprised so far this book has been published the publisher thought, you know, it'd be published at exactly the wrong time, but I think... Oh, no, it's the right time. So far, the conversation has been sort of oddly open to it because it's like the conversation has got to change because this is too too weird, you know, in which men are, you know, I mean, this it's got to change. And I think the book is landing so far with a decently to a decently open audience, I think. Yeah, because we're all sexual, we're all... S- psychically wounded and we're right. all caught in the story we're caught in, right? I mean, right. And so part of it is, but that's the way to the universal, right? Is that when you're not trying to evade the story, right? But you, right. you get into it. Exactly. Exactly. No, but I didn't know if you were, I mean, you kind of, I don't know, was there the Me Too stuff? I mean, I don't know if you wanted to take it in any particular direction. I mean, you probably I was just answered thinking, it, it well yourself, but I don't I just, know if I, I can improve upon it. I just think you're charting a different space, like where right. you're, you're at. And it's hard because I think you're, I mean, I mean, you tell a story where this, you have a movie treatment idea for a book and, and you're like, I don't have a female partner and a book agent. Uh, I don't know if it's biographical or if it's, I, I think it, you know. I'm, it's pretty autobiographical. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and she spreads her lead. Say, I'd be the partner, right? wasn't totally clear what she was saying, but it was pretty clear. Yeah. And these things happen. I know. It's like, that's so like, that's such a contradiction of, because, you know, on some level that's sexual harassment, like in the current discourse. I mean, that's such a sexy thing for me. You know what I mean? And it was for anybody. I mean, come on. It's a sexy thing. I mean, come on. That's why it it could be a movie scene. Exactly. And And it almost seems like now, I don't know if that would happen. Maybe, I mean. And you're a man of the left, so you're not denying. Right. Like, but, right. but also, like, the, the problem with, uh, I was talking with a spiritual director years ago, a Catholic, and he, sure, and he said, you know, the problem is, in this Augustinian tradition, we often moralize everything, it's black or white, right, right. And we oftentimes have to sit with a story to ambiguity. And I feel like the left is now doing that totally. same thing. The party and, of piety, totally. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that, that experience is something that, like, it happened. It's, I mean, fortunately, no one was hurt, wounded, mm-hmm. scarred, it, 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 things. But being able to live in a place where things like this happen, mm-hmm. and it, 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 there, there doesn't have to be a sort of uh, just rapacious piety uh, on either side, but but because this is the world we live in. Right. Right. And I feel like you're offering people a lens to look at their own. I mean, thank you. I mean, that's incredibly generous. I mean, that seems exactly, I mean, exactly so that, um, you know, there was, there was a nice quote from a writer who said, you know, 
don't know if you're supposed to quote your own blurbs, but, you know, she says, you know, in our culture at the moment, the prevailing discussion of the way relationships work leaves no space for contradiction. If there's no contradiction, you know, there's no humanity. Exactly. It kind of circles back to exactly Hegel's, what we were yeah. talking about at the very beginning. And then, you know, she just says, this book is satisfyingly messy and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, that, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, I'm very fond of this odd thing of great art is clear thinking about mixed feelings. Yeah. That's my go-to. Yeah. And this book is about profoundly mixed feelings. And I don't know if it's great art or not, but it's trying to be a work of art. And um, it tries to be clear thinking through thinking hard myself, through bringing in some obviously distinguished thinkers, and it's about, guess what? Almost all of us are built out of amazingly mixed feelings. So welcome to the human, the human carnival. John Scoyle says of you, David Shields is the most honest writer alive. That could very well be true. Scary stuff. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks so much, Scott. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, Please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to David for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, The Trouble with Men. You will not regret it, I promise you. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.